0: Sixty-two. Research. I wish to submit my formal protest at the idea of abandoning the tower. This is an extreme step, taken brashly. From Drawer 222, Smokestone. Secrets. The city was brimming with them. It was stuffed with them so tightly they couldn't help but ooze out. The only thing for Shallan to do then was punch herself in the face. That was harder than it seemed. She always flinched. Come on, she thought, making a fist. With eyes squeezed shut, she braced herself, then smacked her free hand into the side of her head. It barely hurt. She simply wasn't capable of hitting herself hard enough. Maybe she could get Adolin to do it for her. He was in the back workroom of the tailor's shop. Shallan had excused herself to step into the front showroom, as she figured the others would react poorly to her trying to actively attract a pain spren. She could hear their voices as they interrogated the polite tailor. It started with the riots, your majesty, the woman said in response to a question from Elokar. Or maybe before with the, well, it's complicated. Oh, I can't believe that you're here. I've had passion for something to happen true, but to finally, I mean- Take a deep breath, Yolkska, Adeline said gently. Even his voice was adorable. Once you've taken all this in, we can continue. Secrets, Shallan thought. Secrets caused all of this. Shallan peeked into the other room. The king, Adolin- Yokska the tailor and Kaladin sat inside, all wearing their own faces again. They'd sent Kaladin's men, along with Red, Ishna, and Vatha, off with the tailor's housemaid to prepare the upper rooms and attic to accommodate guests. Yokska and her husband would be sleeping on pallets in the back room here. Naturally, Elokar had been given their room. Right now, the small group had arranged a circle of wooden chairs under the heedless watch of tailor's dummies, wearing a variety of half-finished coats. Similar finished coats were displayed around the showroom. They were made in bright colors, even brighter than the Alethi wore at the Shattered Plains, with gold or silver thread, shiny buttons, and elaborate embroidery on the large pockets. The coats didn't close at the front except for a few buttons right below the collar while the sides flared out, then split into tails at the back. It was the execution of the ardent bright lord, Yolkska said. The queen had her hanged and, oh, it was so gruesome. Blessed passion, your majesty, I don't want to speak ill of your wife. She must not have realized. Just tell us, Elokar said. Do not fear reprisal. I must know what the city's people think. Yokska trembled. She was a small, plump woman who wore her long, Thalen eyebrows curled in twin ringlets and was probably very fashionable in that skirt and blouse. Shallan lingered in the doorway, curious as to what the tailor had to say. Well, Yokska continued, during the riots, the queen, the queen basically vanished. We'd get proclamations from her now and then, but they often didn't make much sense. It all went wrong at the Arden's death. The city was already in an uproar. She wrote such awful things, your majesty, about the state of the monarchy and the queen's faith and- And Aesudan condemned her to death, Elucar said. Lit only by a few spheres at the center of their circle, his face was half shadowed. It was a most intriguing effect, and Shalan took a memory for later sketching. Yes, your majesty. It was the dark spren, obviously, who gave the actual order, Elokar said. The dark spren that is controlling the palace. My wife would never be so imprudent as to publicly execute an ardent during such parlous times. Oh, yes, of course, dark spren, in the palace. Yokska sounded relieved to have a rationale for not blaming the queen. Shallan considered then noticed a pair of fabric scissors on a ledge nearby she snatched them then ducked back into the showroom she pulled her skirt to the side then stabbed herself in the leg with the scissors the sharp pain seared up her leg and through her body mm, pattern said destruction this this is not normal for you shalon too far she trembled at the pain Blood welled from the wound, but she pressed her hand against it to limit its spread. There, that had done it. Painspren appeared around her, as if crawling out of the ground, like little disembodied hands. They looked skinless, made of sinew. Normally they were bright orange, but these were a sickly green, and they were also wrong, Instead of human hands, these seemed to be from some kind of monster, too distorted, with claws jutting from the sinew. Shallan eagerly took a memory, still holding her hava skirt up to keep it from the blood. Does that not hurt? Pattern asked, from where he'd moved onto the wall. Of course it does, Shallan said, her eyes watering. That was the point. Mm. He buzzed, worried, but he needn't have been, as Shallan had what she wanted. Satisfied, she took in a little stormlight and healed up, then used some cloth from her satchel to wipe the blood from her leg. She rinsed her hands and the cloth in the washroom basin. She was surprised at the running water. She hadn't thought Colinar had such things. She took out her drawing pad and returned to the back room's doorway, where she leaned against the jam, doing a quick sketch of the strange, twisted pain spren. Yasna would tell her to put down her sketch pad and go sit with the others, but Shallan often paid better attention with a sketch pad in her hands. People who didn't draw never seemed to understand that. Tell us about the palace, Kaladin said. The dark spren, as his majesty put it. Yokska nodded. Oh, yes, bright lord. Shallan glanced up to catch Kaladin's reaction at being called Bright Lord, but he didn't show one. His illusory disguise was gone, though Shallan had tucked that sketch away for possible further use. He'd summoned his blade earlier in the morning, and he now had eyes as blue as any she'd seen. They hadn't faded yet. There was that unexpected high storm, Yokeska continued. And after that, the weather went insane, The rain started going in fits and starts. But, oh, when that new storm came, the one with the red lightning, it left a gloom over the palace. So nasty, dark times. I suppose, suppose those haven't ended. Where were the royal guards? Elokar said. They should have augmented the watch, restored order during the rioting. The palace guard retreated into the palace, your majesty, Yokska said and she ordered the city watch to barricade into the barracks. They eventually moved to the palace on the queen's orders. They haven't been seen since. Storms, Shallan thought, continuing her sketch. Oh, I guess I'm jumping about, but I forgot, Yokska continued. In the middle of the rioting, a proclamation came from the queen. Oh, your majesty, she wanted to execute the city's parchment. Well, we all thought she must be. I'm sorry, but we thought she must be mad. Poor things, what have they ever done? That's what we thought, we didn't know. Well, the queen posted criers all over the city proclaiming the Parshmen to be void bringers. And I must say, about that she was right, yet it was still so strange. She didn't even seem to notice that half the city was rioting. The dark spren, Elokar said, making a fist. It must be blamed not a Sudan. Were there reports of any strange murders? Adeline asked. Murders or violence that came in pairs? A man would die and then a few days later someone else would be killed in the exact same way? No, Bright Lord. Nothing, nothing like that, though there were many who were killed. Shallan shook her head. It was a different unmade here another ancient spren of odium. Religion and lore spoke of them vaguely at best, tending to simplistically conflate them into one evil entity. Navani and Yasna had begun to research them over the last weeks, but they still didn't know very much. She finished her sketch of the pain spren, then did one of the exhaustion spren they'd seen earlier. She'd managed to glimpse some hunger spren around a refugee on their way. Oddly, those didn't look any different. Why? Need more information, Shalan thought. More data. What was the most embarrassing thing she could think of? Well, Elokar said, though we didn't order the Parshman executed, only exiled, at least that order seems to have reached Aesudan. She must have been free enough from the control of the dark forces to heed our words via spanreed. Of course, he didn't mention the logical problems. If the tailor was correct about the dark spren arriving during the Everstorm, then Esudan had executed the ardent on her own, as that had happened before. Likewise, the order to exile the Parshman would also have come before the Everstorm. And who knew if an unmade could even influence someone like the queen? The spren in Eurythiru had mimicked people, not controlled them. Yokska did seem to be a little scattered in her retelling of events, so maybe Elokar could be forgiven for mixing up the timeline. Either way, Shalan needed something embarrassing. When I spilled wine the first time father gave me some at a dinner party. No, no, something more. Oh, Yokska said. Your Majesty, you should know. The proclamation requiring the execution of the Parshman... Well, a coalition of important light-eyes didn't follow it. Then after that terrible storm, the queen started giving other orders, so the light-eyes went to meet with her. Let me guess, Kaladin said. They never came back from the palace. No, Bright Lord, they did not. How about when I woke and faced Yasna after I'd almost died, and she'd discovered that I'd betrayed her? Surely remembering that event would be enough. No? Bother. So the parshmen, Adelin said, did they get executed? No, Yokska continued. Like I said everyone was concerned with the riots, save for the servants posting the queen's orders, I suppose. The wall guard eventually took action. They restored some measure of order in the city, then rounded up the parshmen and exiled them to the plain outside, and then the everstorm came, Shalan said covertly undoing the button on her safe-hand sleeve. Ylkska seemed to shrink down in her seat. The others fell silent, which provided the perfect opportunity for Shallan. She took a deep breath, then strolled forward, holding her sketch pad as if distracted. She tripped herself over a roll of cloth on the floor, yelped, and tumbled into the center of the ring of chairs. She ended up sprawled on the floor, skirts up about her waist, and she wasn't even wearing the leggings today. Her safe hand bulged out from between the sleeve buttons, poking into the open right in front of not just the king, but Kaladin and Adeline. Perfectly, horribly, incredibly mortifying. She felt a deep blush come on, and Shamespren dropped around her in a wave. Normally, they took the shape of falling red and white flower petals. These were like pieces of broken glass. The men, of course, were more distracted by the position she'd gotten herself into. She squawked, managed to take a memory of the shame spren, and righted herself, blushing furiously and tucking her hand in her sleeve. That, she thought, might be the craziest thing you've ever done, which is saying a lot. She grabbed her sketchbook and bustled away. Passing Yokska's white-bearded husband, Shalon still hadn't heard him speak a word, standing in the doorway with a tray of wine and tea. Shalon grabbed the darkest cup of wine and downed it in a single gulp, feeling the stares of the men on her back. Shalon? Adeline piped up. Um, I'm fine, that was an experiment, she said, ducking into the showroom and throwing herself into a seat placed there for customers. Storms, that was humiliating. She could still see partway into the other room. Yokska's husband walked with his silver tray to the group. He stopped by Yokska, though serving the king first would have been the correct protocol, and rested a hand on her shoulder. She put her own on his. Shallan flipped open her sketchpad, and was pleased to see more Shamespren dropping around her. Still glass. She started a drawing, burying herself in it, to keep from thinking about what she'd just done. So, Elokar said in the next room, we were talking about the wall guard. They obeyed the queen's orders? Well, that was around the time that the high marshal appeared. I've never seen him either. He doesn't come down from the wall much. He restored order, so that's good. But the wall guard doesn't have the numbers to police the city and watch the wall, so they've taken to watching the wall and mostly leaving us to just survive in here. Who rules now? Kaladin asked. Nobody, Yolkska said. Various high lords. Well, they basically seized sections of the city. Some argued that the monarchy had fallen, that the king, I beg pardon your majesty, had abandoned them. But the real power in the city is in the cult of moments. Shallan looked up from her drawing. Those people we saw on the street? Adolin asked. Dressed like Spren? Yes, your highness, Yokska said. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Spren looks strange sometimes in the city, and people think it has to do with the queen, the weird storm, the parshman. They're scared. Some have started claiming they can see a new world coming, a truly strange new world, one ruled by Spren. The Vorin Church has declared the cult of moments a heresy, but so many of the Ardents were in the palace when it grew dark. Most of those remaining took refuge with one of the High Lords who claimed small sections of Kolinar. Those are increasingly isolated, ruling their districts on their own, and then... And then there are the fabrials. Fabrials. Shallan scrambled to her feet and stuck her head into the next room. What about the fabrials? If you use a Fabriel, Yokska said, of any sort, from spanry to warmer to Painrail, you'll draw them. Screaming yellow spren that ride the wind like streaks of terrible light. They shout and swirl about you. That then usually brings the creatures from the sky, the ones with the loose clothing and long spears. They seize the fabriel and sometimes kill the one trying to use it. Storms, Shallan thought. Have you seen this? Kaladin asked. What did the spren look like? You heard them speak? Shallan glanced at Yokska, who had sunk down farther in her seat. I think... Maybe we should give the good tailor a break, Shallan noted. We've shown up on her doorstep out of nowhere, stolen her bedroom, and are now interrogating her. I'm sure the world won't fall apart if we let her have a few minutes to drink her tea and recover. The woman looked at Shallan with an expression of pure gratitude. Storms, Adelin said, leaping to his feet. Of course, you're right, Shallan. Ilkska, forgive us, and thank you so much for- no need for thanks, your highness, she said. Oh, I did have passion that help would come, and here it is. But if it pleases the king a little rest? Yes, a little rest would be much appreciated. Caladin grunted and nodded, and Elokar waved a hand in a way that wasn't quite dismissive, more just self-absorbed. The three men left Yokska to rest and joined Shallan in the showroom where light from the setting sun streamed between the drapes on the front windows. Those would normally be open to show off the tailor's creations, but no doubt they'd lately spent most of their time closed. The four gathered together to digest what they'd discovered. Well, Elokar asked, speaking for once in a soft, thoughtful tone. I want to know what's going on with the wall guard, Kaladin said. Their leader- None of you have heard of him? High Marshal Azure," Adelin asked. No, but I've been away for years. There are bound to be many officers in the city who were promoted while the rest of us were at war. Azure might be the one feeding the city, Kaladin said. Someone is providing grain. This place would have eaten itself to starvation without some source of food. At least we've learned something, Shallan said. We know why the span reeds cut off. The Voidbringers are trying to isolate the city, Elokar said. They locked down the palace to prevent anyone from using the oath gate, then cut off communication via span reeds. They're stalling until they can gather a large enough army. Shallan shivered. She held up her sketch pad, showing them the drawings she'd done. Something is wrong with the city's spren. The men nodded as they saw her drawings, though only Kaladin seemed to catch what she'd been doing. He looked from the drawing of the shame spren to her hand, then raised an eyebrow at her. She shrugged. Well, it worked, didn't it? Prudence, the king said softly. We mustn't simply rush in and fall to whatever darkness seized the palace. But we also can't afford to be inactive, He stood up straighter. Shallon had grown so accustomed to seeing Elokar as an afterthought, a fault of the way Dalinar increasingly had been treating him. But there was an earnest determination to him. And yes, even a regal bearing. Yes, she thought, taking another memory of Elokar. Yes, you are king, and you can live up to your father's legacy. We must have a plan, Elokar said. I would gladly hear your wisdom on this matter, Windrunner. How should we approach this? Honestly, I'm not sure we should. Your Majesty, it might be best to catch the next high storm, return to the tower, and report back to Dalinar. He can't reach us with his visions here, and one of the unmade could very well be beyond our mission's parameters. We don't need Dalinar's permission to act, Elokar said. I didn't mean- What is my uncle going to do, Captain? Dalinar won't know any more than we will. We either do something about Kolinar ourselves now, or give the city, the Oathgate, and my family up to the enemy. Shallan agreed, and even Kaladin nodded slowly. We should at least scout the city and get a better feel for things, Aedlin noted. Yes, Elokar said. A king needs accurate information to act correctly. Lightweaver, could you take on the look of a messenger woman? Of course, Shalán said. Why? Let us say I were to dictate a letter to Esudan, the king said. Then seal it with the royal seal. You could act the part of a messenger who had come personally from the shattered plains, traveling through great hardship to reach the queen to deliver my words. You could present yourself at the palace and see how the guards there react. That's Not a bad idea, Kaladin said. He sounded surprised. It could be dangerous, Adolin said. The guards might bring her into the palace itself. I'm the only one here who has confronted one of the unmade directly, Shallan said. I'm most likely to be able to spot their influence, and I have the resources to get out. I agree with his majesty. Eventually, someone must go into the palace and see what is happening there. I promise to back off quickly if my gut says something is happening. Mmm, Pattern said unexpectedly from her skirts. He generally preferred to remain silent when others were near. I will watch and warn. We will be careful. See if you can assess the state of the Oath Gate, the king said. Its platform is part of the palace complex, but there are ways up other than through the palace itself. The best thing for the city might be to go in quietly, activate it, and bring in reinforcements, then decide how to rescue my family. But do reconnaissance only for now. And the rest of us just sit around tonight? Kaladin complained. Waiting and trusting those whom you have empowered is the soul of kingship, Windrunner, Elokar said. But I suspect that Brightness Shallan would not object to your company and I'd rather have someone watching to help get her out in an emergency. He wasn't exactly correct. She would object to Kaladin's presence. Vale wouldn't want him looking over her shoulder, and Shallan wouldn't want him asking questions about that persona. However, she could find no reasonable objection. I want to get a feel for the city, she said, looking to Kaladin. Have Yolkska scribe the king's letter, then meet me. Adolin, is there a good spot we could find each other? The grand steps up to the palace complex, maybe, he said. They're impossible to miss, and have a little square out in front of them. Excellent, Shallan said. I'll be wearing a black hat, Kaladin. You can wear your own face, I suppose, now that we're past the wall guard. But that slave brand. She reached up to create an illusion to make it vanish from his forehead. He caught the hand. No need, I'll keep my hair down over it. It peeks out, she said, then let it. In a city full of refugees, nobody is going to care. She rolled her eyes, but didn't push. He was probably right. In that uniform, he'd probably just be taken for a slave someone bought, then put in their house guard, even though the Shash brand was odd. The king went to prepare his letter, and adelin and Kaladin stayed in the showroom to talk quietly about the wall guard. Shallan headed up the steps. Her own room was a smaller one on the second floor. Inside were Red and Vatha, and Ishna, the assistant spy, chatting quietly. How much did you eavesdrop on? Shalan asked them. Not much, Vatha said, thumbing over his shoulder. We were too busy watching Ishna ransack the tailor's bedroom to see if she was hiding anything. Tell me you didn't make a mess. No mess, Ishna promised, and nothing to report either. The woman might actually be as boring as she seems. The boys did learn some good search procedures, though. Shallan walked past the small guest bed and looked out the window at a daunting view down a city street. So many homes, so many people, intimidating, Fortunately, Vale wouldn't see it that way. There was only one problem. I can't work with this team, she thought, without them eventually asking questions. This colonar mission would bring it to a head, as Vale hadn't flown with them. She'd been dreading this, and kind of anticipating it. I need to tell them, she whispered. Mmm, Pattern said. It's good, progress. Rather, she'd been backed into a corner. Still, it had to be done eventually. She walked to her pack and removed a white coat and a hat, which folded up on its side. Some privacy, boys, she said to Vatha and Red. Vale needs to get dressed. They looked from the coat to Shalon, then back. Red slapped the side of his head and laughed. You're kidding. Well, I feel like an idiot. She'd expected Vatha to feel betrayed. Instead, he nodded, as if this made perfect sense. He saluted her with one finger, then the two men retreated. Ishna lingered. Shalon had, after some debate, decided to bring the woman. Marais had vetted her, and in the end, Vale needed the training. You don't look surprised about this. Shallan said as she started changing. I was suspicious when Vale, when you told me to go on this mission, she said. Then I saw the illusions and guessed. She paused. I had it reversed. I thought Brightness Shallan was the persona. But the spy, that's the false identity. Wrong, Shallan said. They're both equally false. Once dressed, she flipped through her sketchbook and found a drawing of Lynn in her scouting uniform. Perfect. Go tell Bright Lord Kaladin I'm already out and exploring, and that he should meet me in about an hour. She climbed out the window and dropped one story to the ground, relying on her stormlight to keep her legs from breaking. Then she struck off down the street. 63, Within the Mirror I returned to the tower to find squabbling children instead of proud knights. That's why I hate this place. I'm going to go chart the hidden undersea caverns of Aemia, Find my maps in Akina. From Drawer 1616, Amethyst Vale enjoyed being in a proper city again, even if it was half-feral. Most cities lived on the very edge of civilization. Everyone talked about towns and villages out in the middle of nowhere as if they were uncivilized, but she'd found people in those places pleasant, even-tempered, and comfortable with their quieter way of life. Not in cities. Cities balanced on the edge of sustainability, always one step from starvation, When you pressed so many people together, their cultures, ideas, and stenches rubbed off on one another. The result wasn't civilization. It was contained chaos, pressurized, bottled up so it couldn't escape. There was a tension to cities. You could breathe it, feel it in every step. Vale loved it. Once a few streets from the tailor's shop, she pulled down the brim of her hat, and held up a page from her sketchbook as if consulting a map. This covered her as she breathed out stormlight, transforming her features and hair to match those of Vale instead of Shallan. No spren came, screaming to warn of what she'd done. So light weaving was different from using fabrials. She'd been fairly certain it was safe, as they'd worn disguises into the city, but she'd wanted to be away from the tailor's shop, in case. Vale strolled down the thoroughfare, long coat rippling around her calves. She decided immediately that she liked Kolonor. She liked how the city rolled across its hills, a lumpy blanket of buildings. She liked how it smelled of hornader spices in one gust of wind, then of a lethy steamed crabs in the next. Admittedly, those probably weren't proper crabs today, but Kremlings. That part she didn't like. These poor people. Even in this more affluent area, she could barely walk a quarter block without having to weave around huddles of people. The mid-block courtyards were clogged with what had probably been normal villagers not long ago, but who were now impoverished wretches. There wasn't much wheeled traffic on the streets, Some palanquins ringed by guards, no carriages. Life, however, did not stop for a war, or even for a second aharietium. There was water to draw, clothes to clean, women's work, mostly, as she could see from the large groups of men standing around. With no one really in charge in the city, who would pay men to work forges, to clean streets, or chip creme? Even worse, in a city this size, much of the menial labor would have been done by parchment. Nobody would be eager to leap in to take their place. The bridge boy's right, though, Vale thought, loitering at an intersection. The city is still being fed. A place like Kolinar could consume itself quickly once the food or water ran out. No, cities were not civilized places. No more than a white spine was domesticated just because it had a collar around its neck. A small group of cultists, dressed as rotspren, limped down the street, the wet red paint on their clothing evocative of blood. Shallan considered these people extreme and alarming, probably crazy, but Vale wasn't convinced. They were too theatrical, and there were too many of them, for all to be truly deranged. This was a fad, a way of dealing with unexpected events and giving some shape to lives that had been turned upside down. That didn't mean they weren't dangerous. A group of people all trying to impress one another was always more dangerous than the lone psychopath. So she gave the cultists a wide berth. Over the next hour, Vale surveyed the city while wending her way in the general direction of the palace. The area with the tailor's shop was the most normal, It had a good functioning market, which she intended to investigate further when not pressed for time. It had parks, and though these had been appropriated by the crowds, the people in them were lively, family groups, even communities transplanted from outer villages, doing the best they could. She passed bunker-like mansions of the wealthy. Several had been ransacked, gates broken down, window shutters cracked, Grounds draped with blankets or shanties. Some light-eyed families, it seemed, hadn't maintained enough guards to withstand the riots. Any time Vale's path took her closer to the city walls, she entered sections of the city that were the most cramped and the most despondent. Refugees just sitting on the streets, vacant eyes, ragged clothing, people without homes or community. The closer she drew to the palace, though, the emptier the city became. Even the unfortunates who populated the streets near the walls, where the void-bringers were raiding, knew to stay away from this area. That made the homes of the wealthy here in the palace district seem out of place. In normal times, living close to the palace would have been a privilege, and every large compound here had private walls, that sheltered delicate gardens and ostentatious windows. But now Vale felt the wrongness of the area as a prickling sensation on her skin. The families living here must have felt it, but they stubbornly remained in their mansions. She peeked through the iron gate of one such mansion and found soldiers on sentry duty, men in dark uniforms whose colors and heraldry she couldn't discern. In fact, When one glanced at her, she couldn't make out his eyes. It was probably just a trick of the light, but storms. The soldiers had a wrongness about them. They moved oddly, rushing in bursts, like prowling predators. They didn't stop to talk to each other as they passed. She backed away and continued down the street. The palace was right ahead. Straight on in front of it were the wide steps where she'd meet Kaladin, but she had some time left. She slipped into a park nearby, the first she'd seen in the city that wasn't clogged with refugees. Towering stump-weight trees, bred over time for height and spread of leaves, gave a shadowed canopy. Away from potential prying eyes, she used stormlight to overlay Vale's features and clothing with those of Lynn a stronger, more sturdy build, a blue scout's uniform. The hat became a black rain hat, of the type often worn during the weeping. She left the park as Vale, playing a part. She tried to keep this distinction sharp in her mind. She was still Vale, merely in disguise. Now to see what she could find out about the Oath Gate. The palace was built on a rise overlooking the city, and she slipped through the streets to its eastern side, where she indeed found the Oathgate platform. It was covered in buildings and was as high as the palace, maybe twenty feet up. It connected to the main palace by a covered walkway that rested atop a small wall. They built that walkway right over the ramp, she thought with displeasure. The only other paths up onto the platform were sets of steps cut into the rock, and those were guarded by people in spren costumes. Vale watched from a safe distance. So the cult was involved in this somehow? Above on the platform, smoke trailed from a large fire, and Vale could hear sounds rising from that direction. Were those screams? The whole place was unnerving, and she shivered, then retreated. She found Kaladin leaning against the base of a statue in a square before the palace steps. Soul cast out of bronze, the statue depicted a figure in shard plate rising as if from waves. Hey, she said softly. It's me. You like the boots on this outfit? She raised her foot. Do we have to keep bringing that up? I was giving you a passcode, Bridge Boy, she said to prove I'm um, who I say I am. Lynn's face made that clear, he said, handing her the king's letter inside a sealed envelope. I like him, Vale thought. An odd thought, in how much stronger that feeling was to Vale than it had been to Chalon. I like that brooding sense he has about him, those dangerous eyes. Why did Shalon focus so much on Adolin? He was nice, but also bland. You couldn't tease him without feeling bad. But Kaladin, he glared at you in the most satisfying of ways. The part of her that was still Shalon deep down was bothered by this line of thinking. So instead, Vale turned her attention to the palace. It was a grand structure, but more like a fortress than she'd pictured. Very Aleffy. The bottom floor was a massive rectangle, with the short side facing toward the storm. The upper levels were successively thinner, and a dome rose from the center of the building. From up close, she couldn't make out exactly where the sunlight stopped and the shadow began. Indeed, the air of darkness felt different from how Urethiru had when the dark spren was there. She kept feeling that she wasn't seeing it all. When she'd glance away and look back, she could swear that something was different. Had that planter moved? The one running along the grand entry steps? Or had that door always been painted blue? She took a memory, then looked away and back and took another memory. She wasn't certain what good it would do, as she'd had trouble drawing the palace earlier. Do you see them? Kaladin whispered, the soldiers standing between the pillars? She hadn't. The front of the palace, at the top of the long set of stairs, was set with pillars. Looking closer into the shadows, she saw men in there, gathered beneath the overhangs supported by the columns. They stood like statues, their spears upright, never moving. Anticipation spren rose around Vale, and she jumped. While two of the spren looked normal, like flat streamers, the others were wrong. They waved long, thin tendrils that looked like lashes to whip a servant. She shared a glance with Kaladin, then took a memory of the spren. Shall we? Kaladin asked. I shall. You stay here. He glanced at her. If something goes wrong, I'd rather you be ready out here to come in and help. Best not to potentially get us both stuck in the grip of one of the unmade. I'll shout if I need you. And if you can't shout, or if I can't hear you, I'll send pattern. Kaladin folded his arms but nodded. Fine, just be careful. I'm always careful. He raised an eyebrow at her, but he was thinking of Shallan. Vale wasn't as foolhardy. The climb up those steps seemed to take far too long. For a moment she could have sworn they stretched into the sky toward the eternal void, and then she was atop them, standing before those pillars. A group of guards approached her. I have a message from the king, she said, holding it up. To be delivered directly to her majesty. I've traveled all the way from the shattered plains. The guards didn't break stride. One opened a door into the palace while the others formed up behind Vale, prodding her forward. She swallowed, sweat chilling her brow, and let them force her to that door, that maw. She walked into a grand entryway, marked by marble and a brilliant sphere chandelier. No unmade, no darkness waiting to consume her. She breathed out, though she could feel something. That phantom eeriness was indeed stronger here, the wrongness. She jumped when one of the soldiers put his hand on her shoulder. A man in a captain lord's knots left a small room beside the grand chamber. What is this? Messenger, a soldier said. From the shattered plains." Another plucked the letter from her fingers and handed it toward the captain lord. She could see their eyes now, and they seemed ordinary. Dark-eyed grunts, light-eyed officer. Who was your commander there? The captain asked her, looking over the letter, then squinting at the seal. Well, I served on the planes for a few years. Captain Colot, she said, naming the officer who had joined the Wind Runners. He wasn't Lin's actual commander, but he did have scouts in his team. The captain lord nodded, then handed the letter to one of his men. Take it to Queen Esoudan. I was supposed to deliver it in person, Vale said, though she itched to be out of this place. To flee madly if she were being honest. She had to stay. Whatever she learned here would be of. One of the soldiers ran her through. It happened so quickly she was left gaping at the sword blade protruding through her chest, wet with her blood. He yanked the weapon back out and Vale collapsed with a groan. She reached for Stormlight by instinct. No, no, do as, as Yasna did. Pretend, feign. She stared up at the men in horror, in betrayal, pain spren rising around her. One soldier jogged off with the message, but the captain merely walked back toward his post. Not one of the rest said a word as she bled all over the floor, her vision fading. She let her eyes close, then took in a short, sharp breath of stormlight. Just a tiny amount, which she kept within, holding her breath. Enough to keep her alive, heal the wounds inside. Pattern, please don't go. Don't do anything. Don't hum. Don't buzz. Quiet, stay quiet. One of the soldiers picked her up and slung her over his shoulder, then carried her through the palace. She dared cracking a single eye and found the wide hallway here was lined with dozens upon dozens of soldiers, just standing there. They were alive. They'd cough or shift position. Some leaned back against the wall, but they all kind of stayed in place. Human, but wrong. The guard carrying her passed a floor-to-ceiling mirror rimmed in a fancy bronze frame. In it, she glimpsed the guard with Lin thrown over his shoulder. And beyond that, deep within the mirror, something turned, the normal image fading, and looked toward Shallan with a sudden and surprised motion. It looked like a shadow of a person, only with white spots for eyes. Vale quickly closed her peeking eye storms what had that been don't shift stay perfectly still don't even breathe stormlight allowed her to survive without air the guard carried her down some steps then opened a door and walked down a few more he dropped her none too gently on the stone and tossed her hat on top of her then turned and left closing a door behind him Vale waited as long as she could stand before opening her eyes and finding herself in darkness. She took a breath and nearly choked at the rotten, musty stench. Dreading and suspecting what she might find, she drew in stormlight and made herself glow. She'd been dropped beside a small line of corpses. There were seven of them, three male and four female, wearing fine clothing, but covered in rotspren, their flesh chewed at by kremlings. Holding in a scream, she scrambled to her feet. Perhaps, perhaps these were some of those light eyes who'd come to the palace to talk to the queen? She snatched her hat and scrambled to the steps. This was the wine cellar, a stone vault cut right into the rock. At the door, she finally heard Pattern, who had been talking though his voice had seemed distant. Shalán, I felt what you told me, don't go. Shalán. are you well? Oh, the destruction. You destroy some things, but seeing others destroyed upsets you. Hmm. He seemed pleased to have figured it out. She focused on his voice, something familiar. Not the memory of a sword protruding from her own chest, Not the callous way she'd been dumped here and left to rot. Not the line of corpses with exposed bones, haunted faces, chewed out eyes. Don't think, don't see it. She shoved it all away and rested her forehead against the door. Then she carefully eased it open and found an empty stone hallway beyond, with more steps leading upward. There were too many soldiers that way. She put on a new illusion, of a servant woman from her sketchbook. Maybe that would be less suspicious. It covered the blood, at least. She didn't head back upstairs, but instead took a separate path, farther into the tunnels. This turned out to be the Colin Mausoleum, which was lined with another kind of corpse. Old kings turned to statues. Their stone eyes chased her down empty tunnels, until she found a door that, judging from the sunlight underneath, led out into the city. Pattern, she whispered. Check for guards outside. He hummed and slid under the door, then returned a moment later. "Mm, There are two. Go back, then along the wall slowly to the right, she said, infusing him. He did so, sliding under the door. A sound she'd created rose from him as he moved away, imitating the Captain Lord's voice from above, calling for the guards. It wasn't perfect, as she hadn't sketched the man, but it seemed to work as she heard booted feet move off. She slipped out and found herself at the base of the rise that the palace sat upon, a cliff of some twenty feet above her. The guards were distracted, walking to her right, so Vale slipped onto a street nearby, then ran for a short time, thankful to finally have a chance to work off some of her energy. She collapsed in the shadow of a hollow building, with the windows broken open and the door missing. Pattern scooted along the ground nearby, joining her. The guards didn't seem to have noticed her. Go find Kaladin, she said to Pattern. Bring him here. Warn him that soldiers might be watching him from the palace and they might come for him. Mm. Pattern slid away from her. She huddled against herself, back to a stone wall, her coat still covered in blood. After a nerve-wracking wait, Kaladin stepped onto the street, then hurried up to her. Storms, he said, kneeling beside her. Pattern slipped off his coat, humming happily. Shalon, what happened to you? Well, she said. As a connoisseur of things that have killed me, I think a sword happened. Shalon, The evil force that rules the palace did not think highly of someone coming with a letter from the king. She smiled at him. You could say, um, it made that point quite clear. Smile. I need you to smile. I need what happened to be all right, something that can simply roll off me. Please. Well, Kaladin said, I'm glad we took a stab at this anyway. He smiled. It was all right, just another day, another infiltration. He helped her to her feet, then looked to check on her wound and she slapped his hand. The cut was not in an appropriate location. Sorry, he said, surgeon's instincts. Back to the hideout? Yes, please, she said. I'd rather not be killed again today. It's quite draining.
1: 64. Binder of Gods The disagreements between the Skybreakers and the Windrunners have grown to tragic levels. I plead with any who hear this to recognize you are not so different as you think. From Drawer 2719 Topaz. Dalinar reached into the dark stone shaft where he'd hidden the assassin's honor blade. It was still there. He felt the hilt under the lip of stone. He expected to feel more upon touching it power, a tingling. This was a weapon of heralds, a thing so ancient that common shard blades were young by comparison. Yet, as he slipped it free and stood up, the only thing he felt was his own anger. This was the weapon of the assassin who had killed his brother, the weapon used to terrorize Roshar, murder the lords of Yaakoved and Aesir. It was short-sighted of him to see such an ancient weapon merely as the sword of the assassin in white. He stepped out into the larger room next door, then regarded the sword in the light of the spheres he had placed on a stone slab there sinuous and elegant. This was the weapon of a king, Yzareza Ilin. There are some who assumed you were one of the heralds, Delinar noted to the Stormfather, who rumbled in the back of his mind. Yzareza, herald of kings, father of storms. Men say many foolish things, the Stormfather replied. Some name Kallek Stormfather, Others, Jezrean. I am neither of them. But Ysereza was a windrunner. He was before windrunners. He was Jezrean, a man whose powers bore no name. They were simply him. The windrunners were named only after Ishar founded the Orders. Ishi-Ilin, Dalinar said, herald of luck. Or of mysteries, the Stormfather said, or of priests, or of a dozen other things, as men dubbed him. He is now as mad as the rest. More, perhaps. Delinar lowered the honor blade, looking eastward toward the origin. Even through the stone walls he knew that was where to find the Stormfather. Do you know where they are? I have told you I do not see all. Only glimpses in the storms. Do you know where they are? Only one, he said with a rumble. I have seen Ishar. He curses me at night even as he names himself a god. He seeks death, his own, perhaps that of every man. It clicked. Stormfather! Yes? Oh, ah, uh, that was a curse. Never mind. Tazim, the god-priest of Tukar? Is it him? Is she herald of luck as the man who has been waging war against Imul? Yes. For what purpose? He is insane. Do not look for meaning in his actions. When... When were you thinking of informing me of this? When you asked. When else would I speak of it? When you thought of it, Delinar said. You know things that are important, Stormfather. He just rumbled his reply. Delinar took a deep breath, trying to calm himself. Spren did not think like men. Anger would not change what the Stormfather told him. But what would? Did you know about my powers? Dalinar asked. Did you know that I could heal the stone? I knew it once you did it, the Stormfather said. Yes, once you did it, I always knew. Do you know what else I can do? Of course. Once you discover it, I will know. But your powers will come when you are ready for them, not before. Before. "'the Stormfather said. "'They cannot be hurried or forced. "'But do not look toward the powers of others, "'even those who share your surges. "'Their lot is not yours, "'and their powers are small, petty things. "'What you did in re-knitting those statues "'was a mere trifle, a party trick. "'Yours is the power Ishar once held.' Before he was herald of luck, they called him Binder of Gods. He was the founder of the Oath Pact. No Radiant is capable of more than you. Yours is the power of connection, of joining men and worlds, minds and souls. Your surges are the greatest of all, though they will be impotent if you seek to wield them for mere battle. The words washed over Dalinar, seeming to press him backward with their force. When the Stormfather was done, Dalinar found himself out of breath, a headache coming on. He reflexively drew in stormlight to heal it, and the small chamber dimmed. That stopped the pain, but it did nothing for his cold sweat. Are there others like me out there? he finally asked. Not right now. And there can ever be only three. One for each of us. Three, Dalinar said. Three spren who make bondsmiths? You and Cultivation are two? The Stormfather actually laughed. You would have a difficult time making her your spren. I should like to see you try it. Then who? My siblings need not concern you. They seemed of compelling concern, but Dalinar had learned when to avoid pressing an issue. That would only cause the Sprend to withdraw. Dalinar took the Honor Blade in a firm grip, then collected his spheres, one of which had gone done. Have I ever asked you how you renew these? Dalinar held up the sphere, inspecting the ruby at the center. He'd seen these loose, and had always been surprised by how small they actually were. The glass made them look far larger. "'Honor's power during a storm is concentrated in one place,' the Stormfather said. "'It pierces all three realms and brings physical, cognitive, and spiritual together momentarily in one. The gemstones, exposed to the wonder of the spiritual realm,' "'are lit by the infinite power there. "'Could you renew this sphere now?' "'I do not know,' he sounded intrigued. "'Hold it forth.' "'Dalinar did so, and felt something happen, "'a tugging on his insides like the Stormfather straining against their bond. "'The sphere remained done.' It is not possible, the Stormfather said. I am close to you, but the power is not. It still rides the storm. That was far more than he usually got from the Stormfather. He hoped he could remember it exactly to repeat to Navani. Of course, if the Stormfather was listening, he'd correct Dalinar's mistakes. The Stormfather hated to be misquoted. Dalinar stepped out into the hallway to meet Bridge Four. He held up the Honor Blade, a powerful, world-changing artifact. But, like the shard blades modeled after it, the weapon was useless if he left it hidden. This, he said to the men of Bridge Four, is the Honor Blade your captain recovered. The twenty-odd men gathered closer, their curious faces reflecting in the metal. Anyone who holds this... Dalinar said, will immediately gain the powers of a windrunner. Your captain's absence is interrupting your training. Perhaps this, though only one can use it at a time, can mitigate that. They gaped at the weapon, so Dalinar held it out toward Caledon's first lieutenant, the bearded older bridgeman named Teft. Teft reached out, then drew his hand back. Leighton! he barked. "'You're our storming armorer. You take the thing.' "'Me?' a stocky bridgeman said. "'That's not armor. Close enough. I... Air-sick lowlanders,' Rock the horn said, shoving forward and taking the weapon. "'Your soup is cold. That is idiom for you are all stupid.' The horn hefted it, curious and his eyes bled to a glassy blue. Rock? Teft asked. You? Holding a weapon? I am not going to swing this thing, Rock said, rolling his eyes. I will keep him safe. This is all. It's a shard blade, Delinar warned. You've trained on those, correct? We have, sir, Teft said. Doesn't mean one of this lot won't storm and cut their own feet off. But I suppose we can use this to heal it if they do. Sigzel come up with a rotation so we can practice. Heal. Dalinar felt stupid. He'd missed it again. Anyone holding this blade had the powers of a Radiant. Did that mean they could use Stormlight to heal themselves?' If so, that might be a valuable extra use of the weapon. Don't let anyone know you have this, Dalinar told them. I assume you can learn to dismiss and summon it like an ordinary shard blade. See what you can discover, then report to me. We'll put it to good use, sir, Teft promised. Good. The clock fabril on his forearm dinged, and Dalinar stifled a sigh. She'd learn to make it ding? If you'll all excuse me, I have to prepare for an appointment with an emperor a thousand miles away. A short time later, Dalinar stood on his balcony. Hands clasped behind his back, he stared out toward the Oathgate transport platforms. I did a great deal of business with the Azish when I was younger, Fenn said from behind him. This might not work, but it is a much better plan than traditional Alethi strutting. I don't like him going alone, Nabani replied. By all reports, Fenn said dryly, he got stabbed through the chest, lifted a stone roughly the weight of ten men, then started putting my city back together one rock at a time. I think he'll be fine.' No amount of stormlight will help if they simply imprison him, Navani said. We could be sending him to become a hostage. They were arguing for his benefit. He had to understand the risks, and he did. He walked over to give Navani a light kiss. He smiled at her, then turned and extended his hand toward Fenn, who gave him a paper packet, like a large envelope. This is it, then? he asked. All three are in here. They're marked with appropriate glyphs, Navani said. And the span read is inside, too. They've promised to speak in Alethi during the meeting. You won't have an interpreter from our side as you insist on going alone. I do, Dalinar said, starting toward the door. I want to try Fenn's suggestion. Navani quickly rose and took his arm with her free hand. I assure you, he said, I will be safe. No, you won't. But this is no different from a hundred other times you've ridden off to battle. Here. She handed him a small box sheathed in cloth. Fabriel? Lunch, she said. There's no telling when those people will feed you. She'd wrapped it in a glyph ward. Dalinar cocked his eyebrow at it, and she shrugged. Can't hurt, right, that seemed to say? She took him in an embrace, held on an extra moment, more than another Alethi might, then stepped back. We'll be watching the span read. One hour worth no communication, and we're coming for you. He nodded. He couldn't write to them, of course, but he could flip the reed on and off to send signals, an old general's trick for when you lacked a scribe. A short time later, he strode out onto Urethiru's western plateau. Crossing it on his way to the oath gate. he passed men marching in formations, sergeants shouting orders, runners carrying messages. Two of his shard-bearers, Rust and Serugiatus, men who had the plate only, practiced with massive shard-bows, launching thick arrows hundreds of yards toward a large straw target that Kaladin had placed for them on a nearby mountainside. A significant number of the common soldiers sat around holding spheres, staring at them intently. Word had spread that Bridge Four was recruiting. He'd lately noticed numerous men in the hallways holding a sphere for luck. Dalinar even passed a group out here who were talking about swallowing spheres. The Stormfather rumbled with displeasure. They go about this backward, foolish men. They can't draw in light and become radiant. They first must be approaching radiance and look for light to fulfill the promise. Delinar barked at the men to get back to training and to not swallow any spheres. They obeyed with a scrambling rush, shocked to find the blackthorn looming over them. He shook his head, then continued. His path, unfortunately, took him through a mock battle. Two blocks of spearmen pressed against each other on the plateau, straining and grunting, training to hold their formations under stress. Though they carried blunt practice spears, this was mostly shield work. Dalinar saw the warning signs of things going too far. Men were shouting with real acrimony, and anger. Spren were boiling at their feet. One of the lines wavered, and instead of pulling back, their opponents rammed their shields against them repeatedly. Green and white on one side, black and maroon on the other. Sadius and Aladar. Dalinar cursed and approached the men, shouting for them to pull back. Soon his call was taken up by captains and commanders. The rear ranks of the two practice blocks pulled away, leaving the contestants at the center to devolve into a brawl. Dalinar shouted and stormlight shimmered along the stones before him. Those who hadn't gotten caught up in the fighting jumped back. The rest got stuck in the stormlight, which glued them to the ground. This caused all but the most furious to stop their fighting. He pulled the last few apart and pushed them down, sticking them by their seats to the stone next to their anger spren. The men thrashed, then saw him and froze, looking appropriately chagrined. I remember being that wrapped up in battle, Dalinar thought. Is it the thrill? He couldn't remember feeling it for... For a long time. He would have the men questioned to determine whether any could feel it. Dalinar let the stormlight evaporate away like luminescent steam. Aladar's officers withdrew their group in an orderly fashion, shouting for the men to start calisthenics. The soldiers from Sarius's army, however, spat at the ground and heaved themselves to their feet, retreating in sullen bunches, cursing and muttering. They're getting worse, Dalinar thought. Under Toros Sadius, they'd been slovenly and sadistic, but still soldiers. Yes, they tended to brawl, but they'd been quick to obey in battle. So they'd been effective, just not exemplary. The new Sadius banner flew above these men. Meridas Sadius Amaram had changed the glyph pair's design as was traditional. "'Sadius's squat tower had elongated, and the hammer had changed to an axe. "'Despite his reputation for running a crisp army, "'it was obvious he was having trouble controlling these men. "'He'd never commanded a force this large, "'and perhaps the murder of their high prince had upset the men "'to the point that there was nothing Amaram could do. "'Aladar hadn't been able to provide anything of substance about Toral's murder.' The investigation was supposed to be ongoing, but there were no leads. The Spren hadn't done it, but they had no idea who had. I'll need to take action about those soldiers, Dalinar thought. They need something to tire them out, keep them from getting into fights. Perhaps he had just the thing. He considered that as he finally made his way up the ramp to the proper Oathgate platform, then crossed the empty field to the control building. Yasna waited within, reading a book and making notes. What took you? she asked. Almost had a riot out on the parade ground, he said. Two training formations got interlocked and started bashing one another. Sadius? Dalinar nodded. We'll have to do something about them. I've been thinking. Maybe some hard labor, strictly supervised in a ruined city, might be just the thing. Yasna smiled. How convenient that we're currently providing exactly such assistance to Queen Fenn. Work Sadius' troops to exhaustion, assuming we can keep them under control there. I'll start with small batches to be certain we're not sending more trouble Fenn's direction, Dalinar said. Have you had any news from the king's infiltration team at Kolinar? As anticipated, the Stormfather wasn't able to reach anyone on the team to bring them into a vision. Nor would Dalinar dare risk it. But they'd sent several span reads with Elokar and Shalon. None. We'll keep watch and tell you the moment we get any sort of response. Dalinar nodded and shoved down his worry for Elokar and his son. He had to trust that they'd eventually either accomplish their task or find a way to report what was stopping them. Yasna summoned her shard blade. Odd how natural it looked to see Yasna with a sword. You ready? I am. The reshi girl, Lyft, had obtained permission from the Azish court to unlock the oath gate on their side. The emperor was, at long last, willing to meet with Dalinar in the flesh. Jasna engaged the device, rotating the inner wall, the floor shimmering, light flashed outside, and immediately stuffy heat surged in through the doorways. Apparently a season of summer was well underway in Aesir. It smelled different here, of exotic spices and more subtle things like unfamiliar woods. Good luck, Yasna said as he stepped out of the room. It flashed behind him as she returned to Uethiru, leaving him to meet the Azish imperial court on his own. 65. Verdict Now that we abandon the tower, can I finally admit that I hate this place? Too many rules. From Drawer 8-1, Amethyst Memories churned in Dalinar's head as he walked down a long corridor outside the Oathgate control building in Azemir, which was covered by a magnificent bronze dome. The Grand Market, as it was called, was an enormous indoor shopping district. That would prove inconvenient when Dalinar needed to use the full Oathgate. He couldn't see any of the market currently. The control building, which had been treated as some kind of monument in the market— was now surrounded by a wooden set of walls and a new corridor. Empty of people, it was lit by sphere lamps along the walls. Sapphires. Coincidence or a gesture of respect to a Colin visitor? At the end, the hallway opened into a small room populated by a line of Azish soldiers. They wore plated mail with colorful caps on their heads, great shields, and very long-handled axes with small heads. The whole group jumped as Dalinar entered, and then shied back, weapons held threateningly. Dalinar held his arms out to the sides, packet from Fen in one hand, food bundle in the other. I am unarmed. They spoke quickly in Aesish. He didn't see the Prime or the Little Radiant, though the people in patterned robes were viziers and scions. Both were essentially Azish versions of Ardens, except here the Ardens were involved in the government far more than was proper. A woman stepped forward, the many layers of her long, extravagant robes rustling as she walked. A matching hat completed the outfit. She was important, and perhaps planned to interpret for him herself. Time for my first attack, Dalinar thought. He opened the packet that Fenn had given him and removed four pieces of paper. He presented them to the woman and was pleased at the shock in her eyes. She hesitantly took them, then called to some of her companions. They joined her before Dalinar, which made the guards distinctly anxious. A few had drawn triangular cattery, a popular variety of short sword here in the West. He'd always wanted one. The Ardents withdrew behind the soldiers, speaking animatedly. The plan was to exchange pleasantries in this room, then for Dalinar to immediately return to Uethiru, whereupon they intended to lock the oath-gate from their side. He wanted more. He intended to get more. Some kind of alliance or at least a meeting with the Emperor. One of the Ardents started reading the papers to the others. The writing was in Azish, A funny language made of little markings that looked like Kremling tracks. It lacked the elegant, sweeping verticals of the Alethi women's script. Dalinar closed his eyes, listening to the unfamiliar language. As in Thalen City, he had a moment of feeling he could almost understand. Stretching, he felt that meaning was close to him. ''Would you help me understand?'' he whispered to the Stormfather. What makes you think I can? Don't be coy, Delennar whispered. I've spoken new languages in the visions. You can make me speak Azish. The Stormfather rumbled in discontent. That wasn't me, he finally said. It was you. How do I use it? Try touching one of them. With spiritual adhesion, you can make a connection. Dalinar regarded the group of hostile guards, then sighed, waving and miming the act of dumping a little drink into his mouth. The soldiers exchanged sharp words, then one of the youngest was pushed forward with a canteen. Dalinar nodded in thanks, then, as he took a drink from the water bottle, grabbed the young man by the wrist and held on. ''Stormlart,'' the rumbling in his mind said. Dalinar pressed Stormlight into the other man and felt something, like a friendly sound coming from another room. All you had to do was get in. After a careful shove, the door opened and sounds twisted and undulated in the air. Then, like music changing keys, they modulated from gibberish to sense. Captain, cried the young guard that Dalinar held, what do I do? He's got me. Dalinar let go, and fortunately his understanding of the language persisted. I'm sorry, soldier, Dalinar said, handing back the canteen. I didn't mean to alarm you. The young soldier stepped back among his fellows. The warlord speaks Aesish," He sounded as surprised as if he'd met a talking chull. Dalinar clasped his hands behind his back and watched the Ardens. You insist on thinking of them as ardents, he told himself, because they can read, both male and female. But he was no longer in Alethkar. Despite those bulky robes and large hats, the Azish women wore nothing on their safe hands. Sunmaker, Dalinar's ancestor, had argued that the Azish had been in need of civilizing. He wondered if anyone had believed that argument even in those days— or if they'd all seen it for the rationalization it was. The viziers and scions finished reading, then turned toward Dalinar, lowering the pages he'd given them. He had heeded Queen Fenn's plan, trusting that he couldn't bully his way through Aesir with a sword. Instead, he had brought a different kind of weapon. An essay. "'Do you truly speak our language, Aleti?' the lead vizier called." She had a round face, dark brown eyes and a cap covered in bright patterns. Her greying hair came out the side in a tight braid. I've had the opportunity to learn it recently, Dalinar said. You are Vizier Nura, I assume. Did Queen Fen really write this? With her own hand, your grace, Dalinar said. Feel free to contact Thalen City to confirm. They huddled to consult again in quiet tones. The essay was a lengthy but compelling argument for the economic value of the Oath Gates to the cities that hosted them. Fenn argued that Dalinar's desperation to forge an alliance made for the perfect opportunity to secure beneficial and lasting trade deals through Eurythiru. Even if Aesir had no plans to fully join the coalition, they should negotiate use of the Oath Gates and send a delegation to the tower. It spent a lot of words saying what was obvious and was exactly the sort of thing Dalinar had no patience for, which hopefully would make it perfect for the Azish. And if it wasn't quite sufficient, well, Dalinar knew never to go into battle without fresh troops in reserve. Your Highness, Nura said, as impressed as we are that you cared to learn our language, and even considering the compelling argument presented here. We think it best if— She trailed off as Dalinar reached in his packet and withdrew a second sheaf of papers, six pages this time. He held them up before the group like a raised banner, then proffered them. A nearby guard jumped back, making his mail jingle. The small chamber grew quiet. Finally, a guard accepted the papers and took them to the viziers and scions. A shorter man among them began reading quietly. This one was an extended treatise from Navani, talking about the wonders they'd discovered in Uratheru, formerly inviting the Azish scholars to visit and share. She made clever arguments about the importance of new fabrials and technology in fighting the Voidbringers, she included diagrams of the tents she'd made to help them fight during the weeping and explained her theories for floating towers. Then, with Dalinar's permission, she offered a gift. Detailed schematics that Terevangian had brought from Yaakoved, explaining the creation of so-called half-shards, Fabriel shields that could withstand a few blows from shard blades. The enemy is united against us went her essay's final argument. They have the unique advantages of focus, harmony, and memories that extend far into the past. Resisting them will require our greatest minds, whether Aleti, Azish, Baden, or Thalen. I freely give state secrets, for the days of hoarding knowledge are gone. Now we either learn together or we fall individually. The viziers finished— Then they passed around the schematics, studying them for an extended time. When the group looked back at Dalinar, he could see that their attitude was changing. Remarkably, this was working. Well, he didn't know much about essays, but he had an instinct for combat. When your opponent was gasping for breath, you didn't let him get back up. You rammed your sword right into his throat. Dalinar reached into his packet and removed the last paper inside, a single sheet written on front and back. He held it up between his first two fingers. The Azish watched it with wide eyes as if he'd revealed a glowing gemstone of incalculable wealth. This time, Vizier Nura herself stepped forward and took it. Verdict, she read from the top. By Yasna The others pushed through the guards, gathering around, and began reading it to themselves. Though this was the shortest of the essays, he heard them whispering and marveling over it. Look, it incorporates all seven of Aku's logical forms. That's an allusion to the Grand Orientation, and Storm's. She quotes Prime Kasimarlex in three successive stages, each escalating the same quote to a different level of superior understanding. One woman held her hand to her mouth. It's written entirely in a single rhythmic meter. Great Yezir, Nora said. You're right. The illusions, such wordplay. The momentum and rhetoric. Logic spren burst around them in the shape of little storm clouds. Then, practically as one, the scions and viziers turned to Dalinar. "'This is a work of art,' Nora said. "'Is it persuasive?' Dalinar asked. "'It provokes further consideration,' Nora said, looking to the others who nodded. "'You actually came alone. We are shocked by that. Aren't you worried for your safety?' "'Your radiant,' Dalinar said, "'has proven to be wise for one so young.' I am certain I can depend on her for my safety. I don't know that I depend on her for anything, said one of the men, chuckling. Unless it's swiping your pocket change. All the same, Dalinar said, I have come begging you to trust me. This seemed the best proof of my intentions. He spread his hands to the sides. Do not send me back immediately. Let us talk as allies not men in a battlefield tent to parley. I will bring these essays before the Prime and his formal counsel, busier Nora finally said. I admit he seems fond of you, despite your inexplicable invasion of his dreams. Come with us. That would lead him away from the earth Gate and any chance he had at transferring home in an emergency. But that was what he'd been hoping for. Gladly, Your Grace. They walked along a twisting path through the dome covered market, which was now empty like a ghost town. Many of the streets ended at barricades manned by troops. They'd turned the Azimir Grand Market into a kind of reverse fortress, intended to protect the city from whatever might come through the Oath Gate. If troops left the control building, they would find themselves in a maze of confusing streets. Unfortunately for the Azish, the control building alone was not the gate. A radiant could make this entire dome vanish, replaced with an army in the middle of Azimir. He'd have to be delicate about how he explained that. He walked with Vizier Nora, followed by the other scribes, who passed the essays around again. Nora didn't make small talk with him, and Dalinar maintained no illusions. This trip through the dark indoor streets with packed market buildings and twisting paths was meant to confuse him, should he try to remember the way. They eventually climbed up to a second level and left through a doorway out onto a ledge along the outside rim of the dome. Clever. From up here he could see that the ground floor exits from the market were barricaded or sealed off. The only clear way out was up that flight of steps onto this platform around the circumference of the large bronze dome, then down another set of steps. From this upper ramp he could see some of Azimir, and was relieved by how little destruction he saw. Some of the neighborhoods on the west side of the city seemed to have collapsed, but all in all the city had weathered the Everstorm in good shape. Most of the structures were stone here, and the grand domes— many overlaid with reddish-gold bronze, reflected the sunlight like molten marbles. The people wore colorful clothing, of patterns that scribes could read like a language. This summer season was warmer than he was accustomed to. Dalinar turned east. Erethiru lay somewhere in that direction, in the border mountains, far closer to Aesir than to Alathkar. This way, Blackthorn. Nora said, starting down the wooden ramp. It was constructed upon a woodwork lattice. Seeing those wooden stilts, Dalinar had a moment of surreal memory. It vaguely reminded him of something, of perching above a city and looking down at wooden lattices. Rathalas, he thought. The rift. The city that had rebelled. Right. He felt a chill on the pressure of something hidden trying to thrust itself into his consciousness. There was more to remember about that place. He walked down the ramp and took it as a mark of respect that two entire divisions of troops surrounded the dome. Shouldn't those men be on the walls? Dalinar asked. What if the Voidbringers attack? They've withdrawn through Imul, Nora said. Most of that country is on fire by now, due to either the Parshman or Tizim's armies. Tizim, who was a herald. Surely he wouldn't side with the enemy, would he? Perhaps the best thing they could hope for was a war between the Voidbringers and the armies of a mad herald. Rickshaws waited for them below. Nura joined him in one. It was novel being pulled by a man acting like a chal. Though it was faster than a palanquin, Dalinar found it far less stately. The city was laid out in a very orderly manner. Navani had always admired that. He watched for more signs of destruction, and while he found few, a different oddity struck him. Masses of people, standing in clumps, wearing colorful vests, loose trousers or skirts, and patterned caps— They shouted about unfairness, and though they looked angry, they were surrounded by logic spren. What's all this? Dalinar asked. Protesters. She looked to him, and obviously noted his confusion. They've lodged a formal complaint, rejecting an order to exit the city and work the farms. This gives them a one month period to make their grievances known before being forced to comply. They can simply disobey an imperial order? I suppose you'd merely march everyone out at sword point. Well, we don't do things that we hear. There are processes. Our people aren't slaves. Dalinar found himself bristling. She obviously didn't know much about Alethkar, if she assumed all Alethi Dark Eyes were like Chulls to be herded around. The lower classes had a long and proud tradition of rights related to their social ranking. Those people, he said, realizing something, have been ordered to the fields because you lost your parchment. Our fields haven't yet been planted, Nora said, eyes growing distant. It's like they knew the very best time to cripple us by leaving. Carpenters and cobblers must be pressed into manual labor just to prevent a famine. We might feed ourselves, but our trades and infrastructure will be devastated. In Alethkar, they hadn't been as fixated on this, as reclaiming the kingdom was more pressing. In Thelena, the disaster had been physical, the city ravaged. Both kingdoms had been distracted from a more subversive disaster, the economic one. How did it happen? Dalinar asked, the porshman leaving. They gathered in the storm, she said, leaving homes and walking right out into it. Some reports said the Parshman claimed to hear the beating of drums. Other reports, these are all very contradictory, speak of Spren guiding the Parshman. They swarmed the city gates, threw them open in the rain, then moved out onto the plain surrounding the city, The next day they demanded formal economic redress for improper appropriation of their labors. They claimed the subsection of the rules exempting Parshman from wages was extra-legal and put a motion through the courts. We were negotiating, a bizarre experience, I must say, before some of their leaders got them marching off instead. Interesting. A lethe Parshman had acted a lethe, immediately gathering for war. The Thalen Parshman had taken to the seas, and the Azish Parshman, well, they'd done something quintessentially Azish. They had lodged a complaint with the government. He had to be careful not to dwell on how amusing that sounded, if only because Navani had warned him not to underestimate the Azish. Alethi liked to joke about them. "'Insult one of their soldiers,' it was said, "'and he'd submit a form requesting an opportunity to swear at you. "'But that was a caricature, "'likely about as accurate as Nora's own impression of his people "'always doing everything by the sword and spear. "'Once at the palace, "'Dalinar tried to follow Nora and the other scribes into the main building, "'but soldiers instead gestured him toward a small outbuilding. "'I was hoping,' he called after Nora, to speak with the Emperor in person. Unfortunately, this petition cannot be granted, she said. The group left him and strode into the grand palace itself, a majestic bronze building with bulbous domes. The soldiers sequestered him in a narrow chamber with a low table at the center and nice couches along the sides. They left him inside the small room alone, but took up positions outside. It wasn't quite a prison, but he obviously wasn't to be allowed to roam, either. He sighed and sat on a couch, dropping his lunch to the table beside some bowls of dried fruit and nuts. He took the span out and sent a brief signal to Navani that meant time, the agreed sign that he was to be given another hour before anyone panicked. He rose and began pacing. How did men suffer this? In battle, you won or lost based on strength of arms. At the end of the day, you knew where you stood. This endless talking left him so uncertain. Would the viziers dismiss the essays? Yasna's reputation seemed to be powerful even here, but they'd seemed less impressed by her argument than by the way she expressed it. "'You've always worried about this, haven't you?' the Stormfather said in his mind. About what? That the world would come to be ruled by pens and scribes, not swords and generals? I... Blood of my father's. That was true. Was that why he insisted on negotiating himself? Why he didn't send ambassadors? Was it because deep down he didn't trust their gilded words and intricate promises, all contained in documents he couldn't read? Pieces of paper that were somehow harder than the strongest shard plate? The contests of kingdoms are supposed to be a masculine art, he said. I should be able to do this myself. The Stormfather rumbled, not truly in disagreement, just in amusement. Dalinar finally settled onto one of the couches. Might as well eat something, except his cloth-wrapped lunch lay open Crumbs on the table, the wooden curry box empty, save for a few drips. What on Roshar? He slowly looked up at the other couch. The slender reshi girl perched not on the seat, but up on the backrest. She wore an oversized Azish robe and cap, and was gnawing on the sausage Navani had packed with the meal, to be cut into the curry. Kind of bland, she said. Soldiers' rations, Dalinar said. I prefer them. Cause you're bland? I prefer not to let a meal become a distraction. Were you in here all along? She shrugged, continuing to eat his food. You said something earlier about men? I was beginning to realize that I'm uncomfortable with the idea of scribes controlling the fates of nations. The things women write are stronger than my military. Yeah, that makes sense. Lots of boys is afraid of girls. I'm not. They say it changes when you grow up, she said, leaning forward. I wouldn't know, because I ain't going to grow. I figured it out. I just gotta stop eating. People that don't eat don't get bigger. Easy. She set it all around mouthfuls of his food. Easy, Dalinar said, I'm sure. I'm gonna start any day now, she said. You want that fruit, or? He leaned forward, pushing the two bowls of dried fruit toward her. She attacked them. Dalinar leaned back in the seat. This girl seemed so out of place. Though she was light-eyed, with pale, clear irises, that didn't matter as much in the West. The regal clothing was too big on her, and she didn't take care to keep her hair pulled back and tucked up under the cap. This entire room, this entire city, really, was an exercise in ostentation. Metal-leaf-coated domes, the rickshaws, even large portions of the walls of this room. The Azish owned only a few soul casters, and famously one could make bronze. The carpeting and couches displayed bright patterns of orange and red. The Alethi favored solid colors, perhaps some embroidery. The Azish preferred their decorations to look like the product of a painter having a sneezing fit. In the middle of it all was this girl, who looked so simple. She swam through ostentation, but it didn't stick to her. I listen to what they're saying in there, tight butt, the girl said. Before coming here, I think they're going to deny you. They got a finger. I should think they have many fingers. Nah, this is an extra one. Dried out. Looks like it belonged to some grandma's grandma. But it's actually from an emperor. Emperor Snot-a-lot or... Snoxle, Delinar asked. Yeah, that's him. He was prime when my ancestors sacked Azamir, Dalinar said with a sigh. It's a relic. The Azish could be a superstitious lot for all their claims about logic and essays and codes of law. This relic was probably being used during their discussions as a reminder of the last time the Alethi had been in Azir. Yeah, well, all I know is he's dead, so he ain't got to worry about about odium. The Reshi girl shivered visibly. Could you go and talk to the Viziers? Dalinar asked. Tell them that you think supporting my coalition is a good idea. They listen to you when you ask to unlock the oath gate. Nah, they listen to gawks, she said. The geezers that run the city don't like me much. Dalinar grunted. Your name is Lyft, right? Right. And your order? More food. I meant your order of Knights Radiant. What powers do you have? Oh, um, Edge Dancer? I slip around and stuff. Slip around. It's real fun. Except when I run into things. Then it's only kind of fun. Dalinar leaned forward, wishing, again, he could go in and talk to all those fools and scribes. No. For once, trust in someone else, Dalinar. Lift cocked her head. Ha, huh. you smell like her. Her? The crazy spren who lives in the forest. You've met the Night Watcher? Yeah, you? He nodded. They sat there, uncomfortable, until the young girl handed one of her bowls of dried fruit to Dalinar. He took a piece and chewed it in silence, and she took another. They ate the entire bowl, saying nothing until the door opened. Dalinar jumped. Nura stood in the doorway, flanked by other viziers. Her eyes flickered toward Lift, and she smiled. Nura didn't seem to think as poorly of Lift as the little girl indicated. Dalinar stood up, feeling a sense of dread. He prepared his arguments, his pleas. They had to, the Emperor and his council, Nora said, have decided to accept your invitation to visit Uratiru. Dalinar cut off his objection. Did she say accept? The Prime of Imul has also reached Aesir, Nora said. He brought the sage with him, and they should be willing to join us. Unfortunately, following the Parshman assault, Emul is a fraction of what it once was. I suspect he will be eager for any and every source of aid and will welcome this coalition of yours. The Prince of Tashik has an ambassador, his brother, in the city. He'll come as well. And the Princess of Yezir is reportedly coming in person to plead for aid. We'll see about her. I think she simply believes Ezemir will be safer. She lives here half the year anyway. Alm and Desh have ambassadors in the city, and Leofor is always eager to join whatever we do as long as they can cater the storming meetings. I can't speak for Steen. They're a tricky bunch. I doubt you want Tukar's priest-king, and Morat is overrun. But we can bring a good sampling of the Empire to join your discussions.' I. Delinar stammered. Thank you. It was actually happening. As they'd hoped, Azir was the linchpin. Well, your wife writes a good essay, Nora said. He started. Navani's essay was the one that convinced you, not Yasna's? Each of the three arguments were weighed favorably, and the reports from Thalen City are encouraging. Nora said. That had no small part in our decision. But while Yasna Kolin's writing is every bit as impressive as her reputation suggests, there was something more authentic about Lady Nivani's plea. She is one of the most authentic people I know, Dalinar smiled like a fool. And she is good at getting what she wants. Let me lead you back to the Oath Gate. We will be in contact about the Prime's visit to your city. Dalinar collected his span reed and bade farewell to Lift, who stood on the back of the couch and waved to him. The sky looked brighter as the Viziers accompanied him back to the dome that housed the Oath Gate. He could hear them speaking eagerly as they entered the rickshaws. They seemed to be embracing this decision with gusto now that it had been made. Dalinar passed the trip quietly, worried that he might say something brutish and ruin things. Once they entered the market dome, he did take the opportunity to mention to Nora that the Gate could be used to transport everything there, including the dome itself. I'm afraid that it's a larger security threat than you know, he finished saying to her as they reached the control building. What would it do, she said. If we built a structure halfway across the plateau perimeter, would it slice the thing in two? What if a person is half on, half off? That we don't know yet, Dalinar said, fumbling the span reed on and off in a pattern to send the signal that would bring Yasna back through the Earth Gate to fetch him. I'll admit, Nura said softly as the other viziers chatted behind. I'm not pleased at being overruled. I am the Emperor's loyal servant, but I do not like the idea of your radiance, Dalinar Colin. These powers are dangerous, and the ancient radiance turned traitor in the end. I will convince you, Dalinar said. We will prove ourselves to you. All I need is a chance. The oathgate flashed, and Yasna appeared inside. Dalinar bowed to Nora in respect, then stepped backward into the building. You are not what I expected, Blackthorn, Nora said. And what did you expect? An animal, she said frankly. A half man creature of war and blood. Something about that struck him. An animal? Echoes of memories shuddered inside of him. I was that man, Dalinar said. I've merely been blessed with enough good examples to make me aspire to something more. He nodded to Yasna, who repositioned her sword, rotating the inner wall to initiate the transfer and take them back to Eurithiru. Navani waited outside the building. Dalinar stepped out and blinked at the sunlight, chilled by the mountain cold. He smiled broadly at her, opening his mouth to tell her what her essay had done. An animal. An animal reacts when it is prodded. Memories. You whip it, and it becomes savage. Delanor stumbled. He vaguely heard Navani crying out, yelling for help. His vision spun, and he fell to his knees, feeling an overwhelming nausea. He clawed at the stone, groaning, breaking fingernails. Navani, Navani was calling for a healer. She thought he'd been poisoned. It wasn't that. No, it was far, far worse. Storms. He remembered. It came crashing down on him, the weight of a thousand boulders. He remembered what had happened to Evie. It had started in a cold fortress, in highlands once claimed by Yakaved. It had ended at the rift. 66. Strategist. Eleven years ago. Dalinar's breath misted as he leaned on the stone windowsill. In the room behind him, soldiers set up a table with a map on it. See there, Dalinar said, pointing out the window. That ledge down there? Adolin, now twelve years old, nearly thirteen, leaned out the window. The outside of the large stone keep bulged here at the second floor, which would make scaling it challenging. But the stonework provided a convenient handhold in the form of a ledge right below the window. I see it, Adeline said. Good. Now watch, Dalinar gestured into the room. One of his guards pulled a lever and the stonework ledge retracted into the wall. It moved, Adolin said. Do that again. The soldier obliged, using the lever to make the ledge stick out, then retract again. Neat, Adolin said. So full of energy, as always. If only Dalinar could harness that for the battlefield, he wouldn't need shards to conquer. Why did they build that, do you think? Dalinar asked. In case people climb it, you could make them drop back down. Defense against shard-bearers, Dalinar said, nodding. A fall this far would crack their plate, but the fortress also has interior corridor sections that are too narrow to maneuver in properly with plate and blade. Dalinar smiled. Who knew that such a gem had been hiding in the highlands between Alethkar and Yakoved? This solitary keep would provide a nice barrier if true war ever did break out with the Vadens. He gestured for Adolin to move back, then shuttered the window and rubbed his chilled hands. This chamber was decorated like a lodge, hung with old forgotten great-shell trophies. At the side, a soldier stoked a flame in the hearth. The battles with the Vadens had wound down. Though the last few fights had been disappointing, having his son with him had been an absolute delight. Adolin hadn't gone into battle, of course, but he'd joined them at tactics meetings. Dalinar had at first assumed the generals would be annoyed at the presence of a child, but it was hard to find little Adolin annoying. He was so earnest, so interested. Together, he and Adolin joined a few of Dalinar's lesser officers at the room's table map. "'Now,' Dalinar said to Adolin, "'let's see how well you've been paying attention.' Where are we now? Adolin leaned over, pointing at the map. This is our new keep, which you won for the crown. Here's the old border where it used to be. Here's the new border in blue, which we won back from those thieving Badens. They've held our land for twenty years. Excellent, Dalinar said. But it's not merely land we've won. Trade treaties, Adolin said. That's the point of the big ceremony we had to do. You and that Vaden High Prince in formal dress. We won the right to trade for tons of stuff for cheap. Yes, but that's not the most important thing we won. Adolin frowned. Um, horses? No, son. The most important thing we've won is legitimacy. In signing this new treaty, the Vaden King has recognized Gavalar as the rightful king of Alethkar. We've not just defended our borders, we've forestalled a greater war, as the Vadens now acknowledge our right to rule, and won't be pressing their own. Adolin nodded, understanding. It was gratifying to see how much one could accomplish in both politics and trade by liberally murdering the other fellow's soldiers. These last years, full of skirmishes, had reminded Dalinar of why he lived. More, they'd given him something new— In his youth, he'd warred, then spent the evenings drinking with his soldiers. Now he had to explain his choices, vocalize them for the ears of an eager young boy who had questions for everything, and expected Dalinar to know the answers. Storms it was a challenge, but it felt good, incredibly good. He had no intention of ever returning to a useless life spent wasting away in Colinar, going to parties and getting into tavern brawls. Dalinar smiled and accepted a cup of warmed wine surveying the map. Though Adolin had been focused on the region where they were fighting the Badens, Dalinar's eyes were instead drawn to another section. It included, written in pencil, the numbers he'd requested. Projections of troops at the rift. Fi'im Kachi Echo, Evie said, stepping into the room, holding her arms tight to her chest and shivering. I had thought Central Alethkar was cold. and Colin, where is your jacket? The boy looked down as if suddenly surprised that he wasn't wearing it. Um, he looked at Taleb, who merely smiled, shaking his head. Run along, son, Dalinar said. You have geography lessons today. Can I stay? I don't want to leave you. He wasn't speaking merely of today. The time was approaching when Adolin would go to spend part of the year in Kulinar to drill with the swordmasters and receive formal training in diplomacy. He spent most of the year with Dalinar, but it was important to get him some refinement in the capital. Go, Dalinar said. If you pay attention in your lesson, I'll take you riding tomorrow. Adolin sighed, then saluted. He hopped off his stool and gave his mother a hug, which was un but Dalinar suffered the behavior. Then he was out the door. Evie stepped up to the fire. So cold. What possessed someone to build a fortress way up here? It's not that bad, Dalinar said. You should visit the Frostlands in a season of winter. You Aleti cannot understand, cold. Your bones are frozen. Dalinar grunted his response, then leaned down over the map. I'll need to approach from the south, march up along the lake's coast. The king is sending a message via Spanreed, Evie noted. It's being scribed now. Her accent is fading, Dalinar noticed absently. When she sat down in a chair by the fire, she supported herself with her right hand, safe hand, tucked demurely against her waist. She kept her blonde hair in a lethy braids, rather than letting it tumble about her shoulders. She'd never be a great scribe. She didn't have the youthful training and art and letters of a born woman. Besides, she didn't like books, and preferred her meditations. But she'd tried hard these last years, and he was impressed. She still complained that he didn't see Renarin enough. The other son was unfit for battle and spent most of his time in Kolinar. Evie spent half the year back with him. No, no, Dalinar thought, writing a glyph on the map. The coast is the expected route. What then? An amphibious assault across the lake? He'd need to see if he could get ships for that. A scribe eventually entered bearing the king's letter and everyone but Dalinar and Evie left. Evie held the letter and hesitated. Do you want to sit or... No, go ahead. Evie cleared her voice. Brother, the letter began. The treaty is sealed. Your efforts in Yakaved are to be commended. And this should be a time of celebration and congratulations. Indeed, on a personal note... I wish to express my pride in you. The word from our best generals is that your tactical instincts have matured to full-fledged strategic genius. I never counted myself among their ranks, but to a man they commend you as their equal. As I have grown to become a king, it seems you have found your place as our general. I'm most interested to hear your own reports of the small mobile team tactics you've been employing. I would like to speak in person at length about all of this. Indeed, I have important revelations of my own I would like to share. It would be best if we could meet in person. Once I enjoyed your company every day. Now I believe it has been three years since we last spoke face to face. But, Dalinar said, interrupting, the rift needs to be dealt with. Evie broke off looking at him, then back down at the page. She continued reading. Unfortunately, our meeting will have to wait a few storms longer. Though your efforts on the border have certainly helped solidify our power, I have failed to dominate Rathalas and its renegade leader with politics. I must send you to the Rift again. You are to quell this faction. Civil war could tear Alethkar to shreds, and I dare not wait any longer. In truth— I wish I'd listened when we spoke so many years ago, and you challenged me to send you to the rift. Sadius will gather reinforcements and join you. Please send word of your strategic assessment of the problem. Be warned. We are certain now that one of the other High Princes, we don't know who, is supporting Tanalon and his rebellion. He may have access to shards. I wish you strength of purpose— and the herald's own blessings in your new task with love and respect gavalar Ebby looked up how did you know dalaran you've been poring over those maps for weeks maps of the crown lands and of alathkar you knew he was going to assign you this task what kind of strategist would i be if i couldn't foresee the next battle I thought we were going to relax, Ebby said. We were going to be done with the killing. With the momentum I have, what a waste that would be. If not for this problem in Rathalas, Gavilar would have found somewhere else for me to fight. Here does again, perhaps. You can't have your best general sitting around collecting creme. Besides, there would be men and women among Gavilar's advisors who worried about Dalinar. If anyone was a threat to the throne, it would be the Blackthorn, particularly with the respect he'd gained from the kingdom's generals. Though Dalinar had decided years ago that he would never do such a thing, many at court would think the kingdom safer if he were kept away. No Evie," he said as he made another notation. I doubt we will ever settle back in Kolinar again. He nodded to himself. That was the way to get to the rift. One of his mobile bands could round and secure the lake's beach. He could move the entire army across it then, attacking far faster than the rift expected. Satisfied, he looked up and found Evie crying. The sight stunned him, and he dropped his pencil. She tried to hold it back, turning toward the fire and wrapping her arms around herself, but the sniffles sounded as distinct and disturbing as breaking bones collects breath. He could face soldiers and storms, falling boulders and dying friends, but nothing in his training had ever prepared him to deal with these soft tears. Seven years, she whispered. Seven years we've been out here, living in wagons and waste stops. Seven years of murder, of chaos, of men crying to their wounds. You married... Yes, I married a soldier. It's my fault for not being strong enough to deal with the consequences. Thank you, Delanar, you've made that very clear. This was what it was like to feel helpless. I thought you were growing to like it. You now fit in with the other women? The other women? Delanar, they make me feel stupid. But conversation is a contest to them, Abby said throwing her hands up. Everything has to be a contest with you, Alethi, always trying to show up everyone else. For the women, it's this awful, unspoken game to prove how witty they each are. I've thought, maybe the only answer to make you proud is to go to the Night Watcher and ask for the blessing of intelligence. The old magic can change a person, make something great of them. Evie, Delanor cut in, please, don't speak of that place or that creature. It's blasphemous. You say that, Dalinar, she said, but no one actually cares about religion here. Oh, they make sure to point out how superior their beliefs are to mine. But who actually ever worries about the heralds, other than to swear by their names? You bring Ardens to battle merely to soul-cast rocks into grain. That way you don't have to stop killing each other long enough to find something to eat. Dalinar approached, then settled down into the other seat by the hearth. It is different in your homeland? She rubbed her eyes, and he wondered if she'd see through his attempt to change the subject. Talking about her people often smoothed over their arguments. Yes, she said. True, there are those who don't care about the One or the Heralds. They say we shouldn't accept Iriali or Boren doctrines as our own. But Dalinar, many do care. Here, here you just pay some ardent to burn glyph wards for you and call it done. Dalinar took a deep breath and tried again. Perhaps, after I've seen to the rebels, I can persuade Gavilar not to give me another assignment. We could travel, go west, to your homeland. So you could kill my people instead? No, I wouldn't. They'd attack you, Dalinar. My brother and I are exiles, if you haven't forgotten. He hadn't seen Toe in a decade, ever since the man had gone to Herdas. He reportedly liked it quite well, living on the coast protected by Alethi bodyguards. Evie sighed. I'll never see the sunken forests again. I've accepted that. I will live my life in this harsh land, so dominated by wind and cold. Well, we could travel someplace warm, up to the steam water. Just you and I, time together. We could even bring Adolin. And Renarin? Ebby asked. Delinar, you have two sons, in case you have forgotten. Do you even care about the child's condition? Or is he nothing to you now that he can't become a soldier? Dalinar grunted, feeling like he'd taken a mace to the head. He stood up, then walked toward the table. What? Ebby demanded. I've been in enough battles to know when I've found one I can't win. So you flee? Ebby said. Like a coward? The coward, Dalinar said, gathering his maps, is the man who delays a necessary retreat for fear of being mocked. We'll go back to Kolinar after I deal with the rebellion at the Rift. I'll promise you at least a year there. Really? Evie said, standing up. Yes. You've won this fight. I. don't feel like I've won. Welcome to war, Evie, Dalinar said, heading toward the door. There are no unequivocal wins, just victories that leave fewer of your friends dead than others. He left and slammed the door behind him. Sounds of her weeping chased him down the steps, and shame spread, fell around him like flower petals. Storms, I don't deserve that woman, do I? Well, so be it. The argument was her fault, as were the repercussions. He stomped down the steps to find his generals, and continue planning his return assault on the rift.